Welcome to Foul Players Radio, your podcast for arts, entertainment, and pop culture. My name is Michael Spedden, your host. Every episode features interesting people with fun, fascinating stories about their journeys in the performing arts. Authors, actors, musicians, dancers, athletes, comics, you name it. Sit back, relax, and have a listen. Let's have some fun. Foul Players Radio is a proud production of the Foul Players Group and a proud member of the SJ Network. And welcome back to Foul Players Radio, www.foulplayersradio.com. My name is Michael Spedden, and tonight's guest is David Snowden. David's been a friend of mine for a good number of years now. Since the 1980s, he has run David Snowden Promotions. His clientele includes such acts, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, folks, Mike Tramp and White Lion, Joan Jett, Kiss, Ace Frehley, Vinnie Vincent, John Sykes, Alice Cooper, and many more. He specializes in the marketing end of the business. You know, promotions, fan club administration, graphic design, photography, and merchandising. He's done a great job with this over the years, and he's got lots of wonderful, wonderful stories. I can just sit and listen to him for hours, folks, and I think you'll enjoy it too. If David's services interest you, if you have a band or an act or something, uh, he has a Facebook page where he can be reached called David Snowden Promotions, and his contact information can be found right there on the page. So if you're interested, make sure you hit him up. He does a great job. Subscribe to Foul Players Radio for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Where else do we have? We have Overcast, CastBox. It's getting to be so many, I'm starting to forget them all. Podchaser, iHeartRadio, Castro, PocketCast. I think I said those already. And on our much easier to remember domain name, www.foulplayersradio.com. David Snowden will be with us right after these words. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Chris Ristali of Breaking the Fourth Wall. If you enjoy our show, you can find it on YouTube. Just look up Realm of the Mist Entertainment or just look up Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. And also, you can find us on all the social medias. Just look for Realm of the Mist Entertainment. And I will catch you on the other side. I'm Michael, the host of the semi-monthly podcast, In a City Like Yours. Join me as I chat with interesting people with interesting life stories. You can listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can follow us on Twitter at IACLYS Podcast, as well as on Facebook and Instagram at In a City Like Yours Podcast. Please feel free to let me know what you think. And keep coming back for the many interesting stories in a city like yours. Hey, this is Don Smith from the Life Radio Show. If you've always wanted to learn more about the world of low-budget filmmaking and even lower-budget comedy, tune into the Life Radio Show. You can live stream the show at WWSU1069.org on Tuesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern. Or find us wherever you find podcasts and like and follow the Life Radio Show on Facebook for live video and other shenanigans. Hey, what's up? This is Christopher Stolle of Realm of the Mist Entertainment. The podcast you are listening to is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network. 
network.com. That's s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and information on those shows, as well as information and an ability to contact publicist Steve Joyner for more information. Just go to the website and check out the family, ladies and gentlemen. Until then, enjoy the show. Hey everybody, it's John Orlando from the PBD Cast. Are you wondering where you can find my podcast? Well, it's real simple. Just go over to pbdcast.com, the online home of yours truly, or it's available through all of those major podcasting platforms. Just search for it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio app, and don't forget that every single Monday night at 8 o'clock, I do a live broadcast of the week's episode of the PVDcast through the Facebook page. Just go over to Facebook.com and search for at PVDcast and join me every Monday night at 8 p.m. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to get on out of here. So I'll chat at each and every one of you later. So, David, welcome to the program. It's good to have you on again. Um, I've had you on when I was on a previous program before, and you've got just some of the greatest stories I've ever heard. And it was good to reconnect with you and have you on again. So how are things going? Oh, things are going good. Good, 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 good. So, um, you know, the the side of the, the you know show business and entertainment that you've been on for all these years has really been more on the um, – you know, promotional side, you've been doing a lot with fan clubs and uh, working with a lot of bands in that way. So um, how did you get your foot in the door with this? It's kind of an interesting story how you kind of even started off with this. Yeah, it all started just being a, a big Kiss fan. Mm-hmm. And the Kiss Army had dissolved. And, you know, I had saw that there was some Kiss fanzines that were out there, decided to start something with that. I had a guy call me from uh, Massachusetts who wanted to actually do a full-blown fan club thing. He and I, we talked about it on the telephone, decided to do it. And, you know, from there, we just kind of hit the ground running where we put together a, a total fan club package, just like where the Kiss Army was because we were... Our thought was there's a lot of these fanzines that are providing the news and they're good, but, you know, it wasn't the full-blown fan experience that people had gotten previously. Interesting. And, you know, so one of the big things that um, I did was I started reaching out to managers, um, to different artists, you know, anybody that I could think of to – you know, get my foot in the door. Mm-hmm. And one of the first people I called was uh, Chris Lent. And about 20 years ago, he wrote a book called Kiss and Sell, which was his business side of Kiss. And oh. he was one of their business managers. And he was on tour with Kiss. I called him and told him I was a big fan. And he was like, well, that's great, but I'm trying to sleep. And he hung up on me. <laughs> I am not one to give up. <laughs> I'm I sorry, him, that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> I called him back three more times mm-hmm. before he finally said to me, 
what do you want? I said, I want to meet the band. And he decided to leave me uh, two tickets and two backstage passes to the show in Baltimore Mm -hmm. and ended up going backstage. Um, I had already stayed. I camped out overnight Mm -hmm. uh, on the streets of Baltimore, which uh, it's not something that anybody wants to do nowadays. That's for sure. (laughs) You know what, what? Around what year was this? Oh my God, that was uh, probably late. Uh, I guess it was uh, 1984 because it was the Lick It Up tour. Okay, okay, right, right. Because I, yeah. I camped out for rush tickets down there in 86 or 87. It was the, uh, oh, Hold Your Fire tour, maybe. Does that mm-hmm. sound right? Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's something that uh, that was like the first and last time I ever went to Baltimore City to do it. <laughs> you know, right outside. Oh, I I did it three years in a row for Kiss. Yeah, for the yeah. Lick It Up, the Animal Eyes, and then the Asylum tours. No kidding. Each man. time, huh. I was down there well in advance of uh, anybody else, mm-hmm. and sat on the cold street. The uh, the Lick It Up, waiting for tickets for that. What made that interesting was that I didn't know that there was a concert going on the night that I was camping out. (laughs) 38 Special and Huey Lewis in the News. Oh, what a pairing. (laughs) And and the way that their box office was situated was right next to one of the exit doors. So I was sitting right there. And when that concert let out, I had to finally get up and move away from the door because I had so many people smacking me with the door as they were coming out. (laughs) Um, But three years in a row, I had the exact same seat, which was, uh, I think it was uh, row one, seat A or row A, seat one. Mm -hmm. But I had seats one and two um, all three years. And you know, it, it got to the point where I was like, wow, you know, this is like my permanent seat for Kiss in Baltimore. Mm. <laughs> but, yeah. um, mm. you know, but getting back to like the whole business thing after that night, I did get to go backstage. I did meet Gene Simmons. Mm. Um, I gave him a bunch of uh, pictures of uh, my Kiss collection, had told him a little bit about what I was doing. And, about two weeks after that, I got a call back from somebody who was on tour with Kiss. They had the pictures that I gave to Jean, and everybody in the band had signed them. She wanted my address to mail them back to me, which I thought was really nice because you don't get that kind of mm-hmm. stuff from people nowadays. Um, and after that, I thought, well, if I can get a hold of this guy on the telephone, my next big one was I started calling this guy George Suet. And George had started out in the music business with Herman Hermits oh, way sure. back in yeah, way back in the sixties. Right, right. Um, he had done some stuff with uh, Elvis, he did some stuff with Zeppelin for a while, and at some point in the late seventies he got hooked up with Kiss. And uh they had him as the road manager. Mm-hmm. He was there, and he was the one who actually, today, ironically enough, is the uh, anniversary of the death of Eric Carr. Oh, yes, it is. It is. And he was the one who actually called Eric and said, hey, look, 
you know, we're going to have you come in for an audition. This is what we need you to do. We need you to shave your mustache. Mm-hmm. And here are the songs you're going to have to learn. And he set all that up. Well, by the time I reached out to George, he was no longer working with Kiss, uh, but he was managing Ace Frehley and Vinnie Vincent. Oh, okay. Okay. So I kept calling him because I really wanted an opportunity to do an interview with Ace. And he never returned any of my calls. And in early 85 in March, uh, it was March 3rd, 1985, Ace did a show up in Scranton, Pennsylvania. He was doing seven shows Mm. where they were trying to get some interest going with record companies to sign him. Oh, sure, sure. And, you know, he was scheduled to play Hammerjacks, and that show got canceled. Mm -hmm. So... I couldn't have went to Hammerjacks anyway because that was a 21 and over, and I wasn't 21 at the time. Sure. And so I went up to... um, And if I could interject real quick, you were a guy who wasn't 21. If you were a girl who wasn't 21, that would have been a piece of cake, you know. Um, But (laughs) the fact that you were a guy who wasn't 21 yet, that's where they drew the line, you know. So go ahead. I'm sorry, but I just wanted to throw that in. That's okay, because believe me, at that age, you know, with my hair as long as it was, I mean, I I was a pretty little girl. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but but I tell you, that was... um, uh, that was the one thing I always remembered about Hammerjacks was that the uh, the drinking age down there at the the admission age was always more of a as was the fire code in a lot of ways was a suggestion, not yes. always the law, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, I I knew that Ace was playing these different dates, and I ended up getting a call from the DJ uh, who was at uh, WYSP in Philly. Oh, sure, right, and. Mm-hmm. You know, it happened to be this guy, Ken Sharp, who I was starting to know. He and I were exchanging letters. We were pen pals back then. And uh, Ken was a DJ on YSP. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, yeah, he says, I got this contest and I'm doing, you know, giveaway Ace Freely tickets. And then he goes, why don't you hang up and call back and see if you can't be the caller? And sure enough, I was. Mm-hmm. And I won the tickets. And... um yeah, so he gave me the two tickets to go to Scranton, Pennsylvania to see Ace Frehley. Ken Sharp is also the guy who has written several authorized Kiss biographies mm. for the band. Um, he's still out there writing lots of books, you know, stuff on John Lennon, The Cars, Cheap Trick, Pop Culture. I mean, Ken's a pretty talented guy. Mm. And, yeah, I got to the show. I got the tickets. And it was one of those little movie theaters that they were kind of trying to convert into a, um, a concert hall went right down front. I think I sat in the third row. And when the show ended, I saw the backstage door, which was nothing more than a little curtain. So I went ahead and I walked right through <laughs> and I saw George Seward, who I recognized from some, early footage of kiss, you know, out on tour. Mm -hmm. I walked up to him. He looked at me and he was like, who the F are you? And what the F are you doing here? (laughs) And I said, um, David Snowden, I have called you several times. And he's like, so what do you want? I just said, I want to meet Ace Frehley and I want to do an interview with him. And he was like, you know what? He's, you got a lot of balls. And then he turned around and, 
he looked at the drummer and he goes, Anton, hold on to this guy. Don't let him go anywhere. And, you know, so who grabs my arm and stands next to me but Anton Fick, sure. who ended up being the drum one, David Letterman. Oh, drum, yeah. 20 yeah. some odd years. Oh, yeah. He, was, um, um, he did a lot of work with Ace over the years. I think when Kiss did those four solo albums, you remember like in. But when yes, Ace, he did Aces. Yeah, yeah, he was Aces, yeah. And and he did a lot of other bands, too. But, sure, yeah, I, I do well, remember him on Letterman, too, yeah. Yeah, he was also, uh, with the exception of one track on Kiss Dynasty, Anton Fick played all the drums on that particular record. Is that right? And he also played all the drums on Kiss Unmasked, which was the follow-up to Dynasty. Hmm. Um, you know, Anton's had long career... I was standing around, I was talking to him, Richie Scarlett, John Regan, who at the time I didn't realize this is a guy who had done a lot of touring and a lot of recording with Peter Frampton and so many huge artists over the years. Just an incredible guy. Mm -hmm. um, but I stood around, I talked to those guys for a little while and uh, eventually George Sewitt came out of another room and he said to me, he says, David, come with me. He took me in a room. There's Ace sitting in a corner all by himself. He explained to Ace that um, I wanted to do an interview with him. It was not going to happen that minute. But right now, I just wanted an autograph and a chance to meet him. So I got a chance to meet Ace. You know, didn't get any pictures or anything as this was officially before he had uh, – he had uh, – I guess I should phrase it as he had not officially unmasked yet to the public. That's right. That's right. They had the other guys. Uh, they had Vinny Vincent and Eric Carr remove their makeup on MTV first. Yep. No so, You're right. Wow. And, uh, you know, so I got to meet Ace. And uh, two weeks later, George called me and he said to me, hey, look, uh, Ace is doing some recording at the power station in New York City with mm -hmm. Tony Bon Jovi. Why don't we set up and do an interview? Mm -hmm. So I got to do an interview with Ace from the Power Station recording studio in New York City right before he did a scratch vocal for the demo of Into the Night, which was the first single that came off of the Frehley's Comet. Mm -hmm. And getting to know George, I had also been able to reach out at some point. I was in contact with Vinnie Vincent directly. Mm -hmm. And... Eventually, George wasn't able to get Ace a record contract, but he got Vinny one. Vinny asked me if I would come over and do his fan club for him instead of the Kiss one, because he liked what I was doing so much with that. Mm -hmm. And I took that as an opportunity of doing the official fan club versus doing a fan run sort of thing and hoping to get stuff where I would actually be interacting with the band, the management have that sort of access. So I ended up working with Vinny for set the, I guess the three years that the band was around, which was, uh, 86, 87, 88 right. before they finally split up. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, once Vinny's band parted ways, um, and I should say, actually, before they parted ways, I was introduced, I met a guy um, in uh, 
the Tower Theater in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I was on tour with Vinnie Vincent's band. They were out with Alice Cooper, and I'm with them. And when we pulled up to uh, the Tower Theater in Pennsylvania, I saw this really big uh, kid standing out there holding a sign that said, Vinnie Vincent is God. <laughs> this was November 14th, 1987. You know, it has always stuck in my mind, and I see this kid, and I said, hey, Vinny, look, there's this fat kid standing out there, and he's holding a sign that says, Vinny Vincent is God. You really should sign it for him. Vinny's like, you know, it's cold outside. I don't want to be out in the weather. I don't want to get sick. And I said, well, I tell you what, let me go out. Let me talk to him. And when Vinny came off the bus, I did get a picture with the guy, with Vinny, mm-hmm. and then I came back out after we went backstage and they got themselves settled and they were getting ready for the show. I went back out and I grabbed the kid and brought him backstage. He introduced himself, told me he was a member of the Vinnie Vincent fan club. He was number 184. Mm-hmm. And he and I ended up becoming friends all the way up until he died last year. Oh, no. That's a, that's a shame to hear that. Well, you know... But, you know, it's it's a friendship of meeting somebody through music. Right, right. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, you meet a lot of people in life. A lot of times you meet them through your jobs and mm-hmm. things like that or through other friends. But when you sit down and you start thinking about it, it's like, I mean, even how I met you, I met Basically, I met you through music because right, of right. other friends that introduced us to one another. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Absolutely. Yeah, we sure and, did. You know, so it's, you know, when you start thinking about that and it's like, I have so many friends that I've met through music and, you know, different artists and, you know, that guy, he was instrumental in, you know, introducing me that year to a band out of Philadelphia called Britney Fox. Oh, I remember Britney Fox. That was, um, were they a spinoff of Cinderella? Two of the guys, um... Two of the original members of Britney Fox were in Cinderella. Okay, yeah, um, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Michael Kelly Smith, as a matter of fact, he owned the name Cinderella. Oh, for okay. years, hmm. um, and he wrote a lot of those guitar riffs that are on the first Cinderella album, okay. because him and the drummer were with Cinderella up until they got signed. The hmm. record company, you know, back then. Glam rock was the big thing. It was. They would look at certain, yeah, they would look at certain band members and go, you know what? Uh, let's get somebody else. And nobody had faulted Tom Kiefer at all. And I remember talking to Michael about it, and he's like, you know what? He had his chance to take his big break, and he made it. Mm-hmm. And you can't be mad at somebody for that. And then Michael teamed up with uh, Dizzy Dean Davidson. They formed Britney Fox. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they got signed around the time I was getting hooked up with them, and their drummer had a car accident that night, and he died. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they picked up Johnny D. They ended up getting a deal with Columbia Records, helped them out with not only just doing the fan club, but then they really got me into the marketing aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Their manager, Brian Kushner, he kind of took me under the wing and he was like, dude, this is what we need to do with this fan club stuff because we've got these names. This is our way of marketing this band. Right, right. And we started doing that. 
so that by the time the Vinnie Vincent invasion had ended, you know, I was kind of at the crossroads of, you know, Vinnie was the reason why I got into that, but then the people I was closest to in that band was, you know, Mark Slaughter, Danish Drum, and Bobby Rock. Mm -hmm. And Bob wasn't going to go on with it, and I thought, you know what? Maybe I just need to go on on my own. And I gave the record company, I went to Chrysalis, I gave them the mailing list, I sat down, I outlined the marketing plan that I'd been using for Britney Fox and said, you know, this is the sort of thing that works, this is what's going to go. And then, of course, once they released their album, they sold two and a half million. Britney Fox, the first one, you know, did almost a million albums. And, you know, so it kind of went, after you get that first gold record, things started snowballing. Oh, sure. Then I got hooked up with White Lion. I got hooked up with Vixen, L.A. Guns. And all this time as I'm doing this, you know, music, the music business, as with, I guess, any businesses, it isn't always what you know. It's the people that you know and the relationships that you build. Sure, yeah. And I had always kept in touch with George Seward, who was the guy who really believed in me and gave me my first break. Hmm. One day, he called me up and he said, hey, look, um, Joan Jett's looking for somebody to go out on the road with her, and I think I'm going to go and talk to them. And I thought, well, if George is going to do that, I mean, I knew a little bit about Joan. I knew I love rock and roll. I knew Bad Reputation. That was about it. And I sent in a package. I ended up getting the job doing her fan club and marketing, whereas George didn't get a job with him, hmm. which was kind of ironic. But yeah. that's how things go. And the first thing that ended up working with them was she had just put out the album up your alley and first single that she put out in the video was i hate myself for loving you yep i remember that it didn't take off when it initially happened it didn't yeah that was probably what we're talking like 88 89 maybe 88 88 that's right yep and the record company basically you know, had told her, well, you know, we gave it a try. It didn't work. But Joan really believed in the song. Mm -hmm. And Joan funded it herself because that's how much she believed in it. Mm -hmm. And that album went on to be a huge success for her. You know, it gave me my first platinum record. Um, you know, and God, that was, what, 34 years ago? And I'm, I still do work with Joan. Sure. Because she's one of those artists that as time has evolved with her, here I started with the fan club and doing some marketing, got really heavy into the marketing, then got heavy into doing the merchandising with her. Mm -hmm. And then it became more of a special consultant to them, mm -hmm. you know, as, you know, time went on and, you know, roles just change. And you know, I still do things whenever they call. Whenever they're in town, they call me. They invite us down to shows. If they need something, they reach out. If I need something, vice versa. And, I mean, it's been great. But we've always had this kind of unspoken understanding of 
that it's okay that we disagree sometimes Mm -hmm. as long as we respect one another. Sure, sure. And, you know, I mean, I was so proud when she finally got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, that was something, wasn't it? That was just absolutely something. My wife loves her, you know. Um, And um, I tell you, you know, she's just, uh, and she's just, she's year in and year out. She's always just really, really solid. And um, I was really glad for her. You're glad to see oh, her yeah. get in, you know, just, I mean, just remarkable. It was, um, you know, I, I felt for, what was it, 2014, Kiss ended up going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which mm-hmm. was an artist that I had done quite a bit with. Um, because besides doing the fan club stuff, I eventually ended up doing merchandising with them and mm-hmm. other things. And then in 2015, Joan Jett went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And then the following year in 2016, Cheap Trick, who I worked one of their records with them Mm -hmm. um, that came out in the late 90s, they went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which was really nice. Oh, that was wonderful, too. I was glad to see that as well. Yeah, and it's uh, I ended up. In the early 2000s, I ended up producing a DVD with Joan uh, that was called Real Wild Child. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it came out actually in 2002. And um, when we did that, Joan came down. We stayed at a hotel in downtown Baltimore. We shot some behind-the-scenes interview stuff mm-hmm. and went through all their archives with them looking for all the stuff and that's where we unearthed the original color version of i love rock and roll oh okay Okay. because that video originally they shot it in color Mm -hmm. but if you look up on youtube because people have now posted on youtube anytime you release something everything goes to the internet now (laughs) i know but if you watch that color video Joan bought this red jumpsuit that she was really, really proud of and, and, and really couldn't wait to wear it. Mm-hmm. And then she's up on a bar and there's a red brick wall behind her. Some of the guys in the band were wearing red and it, it was just, it's kind of overkill on your senses almost. Mm-hmm. And they ended up turning that into this nice, real gritty black and white video. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and here's a song too that that was another song like I Hate Myself for Loving You. When Joan first heard that song when she was touring over in Europe with the Runaways, mm-hmm. when she heard the original version uh, uh, that was done by the band The Arrows, Joan loved that song and thought it could be a hit. She took it to Runaways. They didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the songs that 23 record companies turned her down on. Is that right? Is that and right? that's when her and her manager decided to press up their own albums, started distributing out of the back of her, out of his car. Mm-hmm. He took uh, his daughter's college money, and he was betting that on Joan. He used that to fund the record. They went over to Europe. They recorded at the Who's recording studio, and uh, they got uh, Sam Cook and or Steve Cook. And shoot, one of the other guys, can't remember his name off the top of my head. Um, one of the other guys that was in the Sex Pistols. There's actually a version of um, them recording the I Love Rock and Roll with Joan Jett. 
Oh, is that right? Yeah, and that's why, like I said, things do come full circle in the music business because here they went over to the England. They recorded the first album there, and they did it at the Who studio. And then forty years later, what she she's back out on tour with the Who. <laughs> I know, I know. Isn't that isn't that something? How those things always tend to work out, you know. Well, when, you know, when you meet good people, I don't think that, um, I can't think of a band that I've ever done work with that, you know, I don't speak to somebody in the band. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not going to say on a daily basis or anything like that, but, uh, you know, people that keep in touch, Sure. you know, sure. a band like White Lion, um, when I hooked up with them, you know, after the band split up, I didn't hear a whole lot from anybody for about six months. And then Mike Tramp reached out to me, mm-hmm. sent me a CD, asked me to listen to it. He said, give us a good listen because I want to have your feedback on what this is, you know, what you think mm-hmm. and how we can market this. And, you know, here I am 30 plus years with him, you know, still doing things with him when he comes around. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, it's it's nice to have those kind of friendships and and forge that thing. You know, forge that with people. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. Well, David, we're going to have to take a quick break right now to run some promos and some uh, ads from our sponsors real fast here. Um, Stick around for just a second. We'll be back with David Snowden right after these words. Hello, listeners. I've got some great news from one of our former guests. Barbara Bustard has just released a book called The Art of Healing, 12 Step-by-Step Meditative Art Exercises for Improved Physical, Mental, and Spiritual Well-Being. Miss Bustard bears her soul and shows us who she is through her stories and exercises. This is a book to be felt and experienced, an artist's work. Art is a way to work through all that life gives us, whether it is happy, sad, or anything in between. Art is a creative, safe, healing, and everything special place. It is the place to work through the stress that underlies all disease. In her book, The Art of Healing, 12 Step-by-Step Meditative Art Exercises for Improved Physical, Mental, and Spiritual Well-Being, Ms. Buster describes the process to make healing happen. The meditative exercises in this book are described in a very simple, clearly articulated manner. They are appropriate for any level of artistic experience. Just reading this book, Ms. Buster's exercises touch you at a feeling level. You are moved from your thinking analytical brain to creative expression. It is available now on Amazon for $29, and it's gotten many positive reviews from readers so far. So pick up your copy today. Her website is artforbodymindandsoul.com. Also remember, the holidays are just around the corner. We all love to support our local small businesses and artists. Make sure you get your copy today. It makes a great gift. Foul Players Radio is now a proud affiliate of the SJ Network. If you're a performer, an actor, musician, filmmaker, author, you name it, in need of a good publicist, call Steve Joyner, 816-605-4561, or you can email him at stevesjnetwork at gmail.com. He has many years of experience in the entertainment business. He's competent, confident, and takes great care of his clients. He would be the publicist for you. Call Steve at 816-605-4561 or stevesjnetwork at gmail.com. 
Howdy. It's Matt Gwynn here, popping in to let you know about the adventures of the albino rhino. It's a show, uh, Frank the Giraffe here, my co-host James Godwin, and myself put on for you guys twice a week. Uh, every Wednesday, we talk to a comedian, and every Friday, we call it Freaky Friday. The show itself is not safe for work, and that freak is definitely a different word. I just don't know what podcast you're going to be listening to this promo on, and I don't want to, uh, you know, start screaming explicatives while you're sitting in your office. If you're lucky enough to have been able to go back to the work that you did before inside of an office or whatever, you know, but we go on a, an adventure twice a week and it's a good time because we get to sit down and talk to some really cool people. Uh, and I enjoy it because, you know, I'm just curious little albino who uh, likes to get to know folks, you know? You can find us a couple ways, actually multiple ways, really. Man, there's a lot of different ways to find us. You can find us through our central hub, which is www.albinorhino.me. It's the website find me on and then you know the podcast you can find the videos on youtube search for adventures of the albino rhino also linkable from our website and you can also find us through anchor breaker google podcasts apple podcasts overcast radio public and spotify that's right we're on the same place joe rogan is granted we're not we're not the joe rogan experience but you know what i mean we're there we're there so give us a listen promise you won't be promise you won't be dissatisfied and enjoy your day. going on minions mike here for misery point radio and you're listening to the coast to coast power hour on the sj network now i know what you're thinking mike what the f is a coast to coast power hour well my uneducated and uninformed friend the coast to coast power hour is a board like collective of epic podcasters from epic podcasts that have all come together to discuss the important things in life pop culture current events random awesomeness stuff like that trust me you need this in your life for more information on this show and all the shows on the coast to coast power hour as well as on the sj network reach out to publicist steve joiner at www.s-j-network.com or steve sjnetwork at gmail.com no need to thank me i'm just out here you know changing lives What's Your and Binge is a podcast brought to you by Chris, Anchor, and Spotify. And what we talk to our guests about is what they're currently binge-watching on TV. And uh, what we do is we like to uh, take a different approach. I don't want to know what the name of the show is that they're going to talk about before they come on. I have to actually guess it. 
So I ask them who, what, when, where, why, and uh, try to figure out what it is that they're watching. A lot of times I'm able to guess it, and sometimes I'm not, and that's fine. That adds to the comedy of the show. We like to bring our guest on, whether they're a model or an actress or a producer or a musician, and just let them have a platform to be able to tell everybody what they have coming up next and also entertain everybody with what's worth watching. So I hope everybody tunes in for the next episode of What's Your Evan Binge. Thanks. It's Chris. And we're back with David Snowden. So, David, uh, we kind of left off talking about um, Mike Tramp with White Lion, uh, some of the things that you've done with him. And, you know, you're still doing some stuff with him over the years. And, um, you know, still doing stuff with him even now. How's what's he what's he up to now? I remember White Lion pretty well from those days. Yeah, Mike's still out there recording stuff. Um, he's got a band that they play over Europe quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Mike Tramp and his and the band Brothers. Okay. Um, but when he comes to the states, primarily what he does is a one man acoustic tour. Oh, is that right? Is that right? They're uh, they're from Scandinavia, right? What he does is because he will fly from Denmark. Denmark. Come to the States. He rents a car. He travels with his suitcase and his guitar. I mean, <laughs> you want to talk about like old school travel? Yeah. And he gets off the plane. He rents his car. And then he drives the entire United States, whatever his tour routing is. Wow. Wow. And because it's just him, you know, he'll stay at his hotels and. Mm-hmm. He does everything that he needs to do all by himself. I mean, he's pretty self-sufficient with that. And it's kind of cool. I mean, and to hear some of the stuff, him doing his take of some really famous stuff that he wrote mm-hmm. and doing it acoustic is kind of cool. Oh, yeah. I can imagine it was. I can imagine it is, you know. Um, and- yeah, and he's... Um, I always love hearing him do a version of Southbound by Thin Lizzy. Mm-hmm which is a band that I really like. And, um, you know, he was a huge fan of Thin Lizzy. Um, it was interesting because in the mid, maybe about 2006 or so, I ended up doing all the tour merchandise for Thin Lizzy okay. uh, when they did a European tour. And people in the States, they don't, I don't think that they quite understand how Thin Lizzy is over in Europe. It's kind of like, how Leonard Skinner here is here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Thin Lizzy is that white over in Europe. Oh yeah. And you know, what's they're just huge. And even though Phil died, you know, long ago, John Sykes had picked up and he was doing the vocals and he had played on their last album. John Sykes also played on several white snake albums and mm-hmm. you know, he had his, um, what was it? Blue murder. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, he put out a couple solo albums. I actually did some photography and some artwork. I did the layout and design for, uh, one of his releases called bad boy live. Mm. Um, you know, but doing all that merchandise and stuff and, you know, Trent was excited that I was doing that. And when, um, they came to Baltimore, then Lizzie's manager, happened to be with me. So we go down to the white lion show and Mike was the only original member. Mm -hmm. 
and you know so my friends with me and he decided to get smart with mike and he was like yeah he says it's just not white lion without uh, the original guys and then tramp looked at him and he goes hey man it is not thin lizzie without philip and then he <laughs> showed the guy his uh phil tattoo on his arm his portrait of him right yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah so i mean it was uh you know, little funny stuff like that where you get people that uh you start to realize that they may be performers and artists and whatnot but you know very real people about how passionate they get about what they do and what they like oh absolutely and i love that about mike tramp is that he's always been a music fan mm -hmm. and i think that's where he and i really connected was we both loved queen mm -hmm. he was a huge queen fan I, you know, he was the one who turned me on to Thin Lizzy. That's how I got into it. Then when I started doing some stuff with them, that was really cool, you know. And a lot of it started with just me hanging out with him, hmm. you know, backstage at shows. I, I was doing some work with them, and there was uh, one show in particular. They played Baltimore. Um, I can't even remember who they opened for, but. Um, White Lion had just put out their second album, Big Game, and they had filmed the video for um, Braid Our Love. Mm, yeah. And, you know, their management came down from New York. Um, their managers actually owned uh, Lemoore's in Brooklyn, the big famous rock club that all the bands wanted to play. Yeah, I remember and, that place. Oh, yeah. Lemoore's was like, you know, Lemoore's was to New York what Hammerjacks was to Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. I never got to Lemoore's. I did get to do CBGB's uh, when I was in Orange Seed, but never got Lemoore's. Always wanted to. Yeah. And, you know, nice place. Their management company, mm -hmm. you know, they worked out upstairs. And um, But uh, while the band was touring here, and Mike and I, we were hanging out, quite honestly, he and I were kind of scoping out the you know, girls at the show <laughs> and his manager came over and, you know, interrupted us. And he starts telling me about how they got this new video, right? Our love and how they really wanted to go to number one. And I was like, yeah, okay, gotcha. And he was like, uh, you know, you're not taking this very serious, are you? Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, actually I am taking this serious. I said, I heard what you said. The video's coming out. Just give me the premiere date, and then I'll get working on that. But tonight, I'm here hanging with him, and we're trying to get laid. <laughs> and his manager, you know, he's a little upset, and he goes, you know, I tell you what. He says, I'll give you $500 if it goes to number one. And I went, yeah, okay. And then Tramp and I started to walk away, and his manager's like, man, you just are not taking this serious. And finally, I turned around, and I said, you know what? I'll bet you a thousand dollars I can get that video to number one on MTV. And his manager looked at him and he goes, Oh, you're full of it. And then Mike Tramp looked at both of us and he said, Shake hands. He says, Okay, I just witnessed this. You guys bet a thousand dollars. And then Mike's like, All right, well, come on, let's go. And then he turned around, he looked at his manager point blank in the face and said, you do realize you're going to have to pay him a thousand dollars. Two weeks later, the video premiered. 
the day that it premiered, I knew some people at the network. They called me and said, um, hey, David, the White Lion video for Right Our Love is going to be number one today. And I was like, okay, great. So, you know, being an asshole, I, I called <laughs> Brooklyn where their management was. And I was like, hey, man, look, the video is going to be number one today on MTV, and I prefer cash. <laughs> and he was like, you don't know that it's going to be number one. You're jumping the gun. They haven't called us. They call us whenever a video makes their top ten. And I was like, dude, I'm telling you, it's number one today, and I want cash. <laughs> we get off the phone he calls me back 45 minutes later and he's like how did you know <laughs> I said well, I got friends too but it, it you know it's just you know it's fun and then what ended up happening was one of their managers uh, in the early 90s ended up going over to Arista Records and he called me and actually hired me to work on a project with the band Enough's Enough mm -hmm. on one of their releases, which was kind of cool because I love Enough's Enough. I mean, Chips Enough was the guy who introduced me to the Beatles mm -hmm. and, you know, turned me into that and uh, also put me in a room full of a lot of pot smoke where you got some definitely contact highs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's amazing. Thirty six years I've been doing stuff in the music business, mm -hmm. and I'm just not a drug guy. Yeah, yeah. I, and I well, there's enough of it around. Believe me, from playing clubs and some of the things that I've seen. You, I mean, you can't swing a dead cat without knocking over a pile of coke or something. But I, I never got into it either. I was always just a you know a beer and whiskey yeah. guy. You know. Yep, just never my thing. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Plenty of, anyway. plenty of opportunities to pick up that habit, but like I said, it never appealed to me either, you know. Um, I guess maybe because I never made that much money in it, and I just didn't, I couldn't justify when I had to put gas in the car to drive home, going out and spending it on drugs where I would get pulled over <laughs> driving home, you know. I would yeah, have to no, take a gas. pretty much the same <laughs> way. I'll be the first one to tell you, I am just too cheap to want to do that. <laughs> Yeah, maybe if we were uh, wealthier, we'd have worse habits. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, um, yeah. I mean, to me, what what always got me going was a lot of the business stuff. Right, right, and, right. I mean, it was a really nice bonus, you know, hanging out with some of the artists and really getting to know them, mm -hmm. and and in some cases, actually becoming friends with them, that sort of stuff. Um. But I was always focused on the business. That's why it did. My company started as fan club stuff. Mm -hmm. And then when, once I moved into that marketing, then got into the promotion, then I realized, well, you know, with the fan club stuff, I really kind of needed to, I needed to know how to do graphic design. Mm -hmm. And I had to teach myself how to, be, you know, take pictures, you know, so it's like, Everything became like an evolving type thing mm -hmm. where one led into the next and then it eventually led into doing some consulting work and then doing some band management stuff. And, you know, I still have people that call me for things like uh, two years ago, Bobby Rock called me 
um, who was Benny Vincent's original drummer. Mm-hmm. And he was the drummer in the band Nelson. Oh, right, A lot of right. people. Mm-hmm. What's that? Right, yeah, I was just saying, yeah, he, yeah Nelson, yeah. Um, and a lot of people laugh about that because they go, Nelson, come on. Well, you know, Bobby Rock, I mean, when it comes to drummers, I mean, he's like a drummer's drummer type of guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people aren't going to admit that. And Bobby has taught a lot of famous people and given lessons to a lot of famous drummers. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the one dude? Uh, Travis Barker from uh, Blink-182, I think yes. it is. Mm-hmm. Um, he recently wrote a bio. And a friend of mine read that, and they were like, hey, um, in Travis's bio, it said that Bobby Rock played in Kiss. Yeah. So I call Bob, and I'm like, hey, Bob, have you seen Travis's bio? And he said, you know, I think he just has it confused. And he said, I got to be honest with you, man. He said, if you're that famous, would you want to have somebody, would you want to tell people that you took drum lessons from the Nelson drummer? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Bob's very realistic about that. I mean, Nelson was a really good band. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a band full of musicians. It wasn't taken all that serious because of, the, you know, long blonde hair and the twins and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But that first record sold 5 million copies. Oh yeah, there were some players in that band, you know, and plus, you know, they were uh you know, Ricky Nelson's sons. So I mean, yeah, they yep. were they, they they were definitely um they were definitely some players in that band, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, yeah. know, the, the pretty boy stuff kind of overshadowed it in a lot of people's judgment of them and everything. But you know, they're they well, just, and yeah. A good know. song is a good song, and that's what a lot of people forget. Yeah, that's true and, too. Uh, right. You know, but Bobby Rock, besides doing Nelson he then went on and he played with people like uh, uh, Grand Bonnet, uh, Bonnet from uh, Alcatraz. He played mm-hmm. that for a while. Um, he went out. I mean, Bob's such a phenomenal drummer that uh, one of the biggest drum companies in the world sent him on a drum teaching clinic tour around the United States in the early 2000s. Hmm. And now he's playing with Lita Ford. And I tell you, I think Lita is probably his biggest fan. Mm. Um, You know, and about two years ago, Bob reached out to me and he said uh, he had been writing his memoir as far as how he got started in uh, the music business with the Vinnie Vincent Invasion. And it was his story of being a kid who got strung out on drugs, then got clean. And then went to L.A. to find fame and fortune and do all that. And because I had lived all those years with that, you know, with that, with everything that went on with the Vinnie Vincent invasion, mm-hmm. when Bob sent me the transcript and I was reading it and I was like, um, you know, this is good. And then he and I got on the telephone and we start going back and forth. And he was just like, wow, he goes, man, I thought I had a good memory. And now that's what I said to him. I said, Bob, I don't think about this stuff every day. I don't think about the stuff that we did. If you talk to me, you ask me, there's certain things that I remember as we start talking about it. You know, it's like on one of your previous programs, we had talked about um, uh, you had Jeff Scott Soto on. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And, 
you know, I don't ever think about it, but, you know, when I saw that post of Jeff Scott Soto, I still remember being at Vinnie Vincent's house mm-hmm. while they were recording their second album. And Vinny recorded lots of demos that were not necessarily going to be for him, but maybe to pitch to other artists. Mm-hmm. And some young kid came in, didn't know who he was. Vinny introduces me. He's like, you know, this is Jeff. And he's like, yeah, we're going to do some recording. So I got to sit there as Vinny played his stuff. And he had a cable that ran from his music room into this little bathroom. And Jeff stood in his shower <laughs> and sang the vocals for the demos. Is that right? Because that was the place that he could get the best acoustics. Sure, sure. And, you know, if that rough demo was good, then they actually took it to a real recording studio. Hmm. Okay. And I believe that uh, Jeff may have even been on uh, a couple albums that Dana Strum had produced. I think I so, too. Because, uh, well, John, well um, uh, Jeff Scott Soto has been on about 964,000 albums. And oh yeah! <laughs> if not, if not his own, guesting on other people's and so many of those collaboration albums and stuff too. He's definitely, uh, he's definitely got himself out there, no doubt. Oh, and an incredible singer. Oh, he's just amazing. He's just amazing. And now that he's out with the uh, Trans Siberian Orchestra, well, mm-hmm. not this year, but hopefully, uh, you know, next year when it comes out. Yeah, they're actually doing a special this year, which is like a. Uh, a one-time special that's going to be online. You can order it, but yeah, they're not doing the full tour or anything now. Now, uh, I don't know if you ever listened to, uh, Sirius XM, uh, uh, hair nation on that. There's a guy that has a radio program that has, uh, he calls it, uh, uh, six degrees to Nikki six or something. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. If you give him one of those for instances and, Mm -hmm. um, and here we're talking about Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and here's here's my little six degrees to that, where Jeff sings in that. Mm-hmm. But you know that was started with um, Steve Lieber. Mm-hmm. Um, was it Steve Lieber? It was Lieber Krabs. I want to say it was Steve. Yeah, uh, yeah, Steve Lieber, mm-hmm. because Steve was the one who let Joan Jett into the office so that they had a place that they could do their business in New York city mm-hmm. when she was first starting her career, when Lieber Krebs split up, then Steve Lieber went on to, uh, he did the Moscow circus, different things like that. But the trans Siberian orchestra was something that was out of their office. Mm-hmm. And the guy who was Joan Jett's original tour manager is the production manager on the trans Siberian orchestra. Right. right. So every year they come around I think I have about 15 or 16 laminated passes because, <laughs> you know, we go every year. My wife loves Christmas. Oh, yeah. And she loves their production manager because when we go, he makes sure that everything is set up completely the way that, I mean, I, I know that people pay a lot of money for these VIP experiences and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But here's a guy who, like I said, I get more excited about meeting the business people than I do necessarily the artist. Sure, yeah. And, you know, here's a guy who, as soon as I get there and I pick up the passes, Mm 
we put the last you know laminates on and then i go and i'll send him a text message and what's he do he comes out into the arena he finds me mm-hmm. then he takes us backstage introduces us to just about everybody hands us a whole bunch of swag mm-hmm. and then he's like okay look let me go take you out to the seat before the lights go down and then he positions you in a way of knowing that a show like the trans Siberian orchestra you don't want to be in the front row yeah i mean it's it's really like seeing like a kiss show or a pink floyd show it is it is you want to be so many rows back sure sure and that's what he makes sure every year. He's like, hey, look, I got you like 12 rows back. Let me know if that's a good view. If it isn't, next year we'll move you back a little bit further because you want to be able to take in the whole spectacle. You do. You do. Where do you normally see them? Uh, my, my, a lot of times it's been down at the uh, arena, Royal Farm. Yep. Um seen them there a couple times went up to philly a few times yeah um we normally go to philly when we see yeah and then uh we've been to hershey we've been to the arena too to see them and um but you're right about that another thing too is that if you sit too close to that with all those gas fires they have and everything man you end up sweating your tail off before the end of the show (laughs) because it gets really hot but when you stand back you get the whole you're, you're right you get the whole um experience of the of the whole um, you know the lasers and all the uh, the snowflakes and the special effects and the falling snow and the lights and everything uh, you're when you're that close you get to see the band a lot better but you kind of miss out on all of that so it's kind of good to be like you know back away so you can kind of absorb the whole thing you know yeah and I'm I mean don't get me wrong if I go to a show and somebody says you can stand in the pit I'm standing in the pit. Right, right, right. Um, I did that a couple years ago. Uh, I took, in 1985, I took my cousin, who was 13 at the time, to his very first show, which was Motley Crue. Mm, okay. And took him down to see the theater pain tour. And, I mean, he loved it. Motley Crue has always been his band. Yeah. Was that with Loudness? Yes. Yes, I remember that tour. And... You know, 30 some odd years later, he calls me up, Molly Cruz on their Carnival of Sins tour. And he said to me, hey, David, he said, I'm going to go see Molly Cruz tonight. You want to go? I was like, yeah, that'd be cool. And, you know, so we go to the show and I found another way backstage. <laughs> and who do I run into but Vince Neal's manager? who just happens to be Danish drum. Right. Again, we go to the six degrees of separation thing here. Mm-hmm. You know? And I said to him, Hey Dana, um, you know, he and I hadn't seen each other for a while and we kind of caught up for a few minutes, but I said to him, Hey, look, uh, the important thing here is not you and I catching up. We can do that anytime. But my cousin here is a huge fan of Molly. And he went, Oh, okay. Not a problem. So he took him back and then Dana says, okay, I'm going to put you guys right here in the pit. And, you know, when your cousin comes out, just, you know, he's, it, it'll all be cool. My cousin came out and he had pictures of him doing Jaeger shots with Tommy Lee. That's what he said to me. He's like, thank you very much. <laughs> and I said, so, you know what? I said, I can go home now because seeing the look on my cousin's face after loving that band for so many years. Oh, yeah. And finally getting a chance 
to hang out with him a little bit. Then we get to sit, you know, stand in the pit, watch the show. I mean, it was incredible. And, you know, it's always great to be in the front row for something Mm -hmm. at least once, especially when it's a band that you really love. Yes, it is. And, you know, that sort of stuff's always kind of cool when you see that. You know, and that's why I said it's like as you get into all this stuff, like with any job, it's the people that you know. Mm-hmm. And when I hooked up with Dana that night, you know, we hadn't seen each other in a while and we had talked for a while. And then here it was two years ago, I hooked back up with Bobby Rock and he and I, you know, I helped him out with this book and how to market it and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Then he's invited to a kiss convention to actually, you know, debut his book and sell it there, which, you know, Vinnie Vincent had having been in Kiss, mm-hmm. you know, it's the Kiss connection. So, and, you know, he asked if my wife and I would come. Now, my wife and I, we've been married now nine years mm-hmm. and um, she's sort of kind of knows, but doesn't know what a lot of it is. Right. I mean, yeah, she's been with me to the Joan Jett shows and she loves Joan's manager, Kenny Laguna. I mean, I, I think she gets more excited to see Kenny mm-hmm. than anything. <laughs> and, you know, I, mean, the first time she met Mike Tramp, you know, she said to me, Oh my God. She said, I can't believe that man is so easy on the eye still. <laughs> and then of course I told him and then he got embarrassed. She got embarrassed. And, um, but I said to her, you know, Maybe if we go to this kiss thing, we can help Bob out. That'd be a cool thing. And, you know, and we get there. And within the first couple hours, she finally said to me, now I understand. Mm-hmm. And I was like, um, what do you understand? I'm not sure. I, I kind of under, you know, I didn't understand what she was understanding. Mm-hmm. And she said, now I understand why you have the things that you have. And, then it became the running joke with Bobby Rock and her. People would come over and they'd buy the book from him. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they, you know, we did all the exchanging of money because I don't like artists to handle that. But mm-hmm. we were doing that. And then they'd say, can we get a picture? What are you charging? It's like, oh, Bob's not going to charge you to, you know, sign your book and take a picture with him. And then people were like, okay, can David get in a picture too? And then people were asking me to sign the book. And Bob's like, uh, it got to the point where between Bobby and, and Kim, they were telling everybody that I was charging $20 to sign the book and get a picture with fans. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, yeah, she said, uh, I, I don't get it. And it's like, you know, having sold and done all that Kiss merchandising for as long as I did mm-hmm. and the type of business that it was, I mean, at one point, I had 27 people working out of my house. Hmm. And they were shipping kiss orders. Hmm. And, you know, that's what that was. It was just nonstop, you know, where it was, okay, I'd get up and I was literally going to a full-time job. Hmm. And there'd be a crew coming in as I'm leaving work. And then when I was coming home, there was a new crew there. Jeez. Mm, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, I, I, that's what I tried to explain to Kim. It's like, 
you know, it's just what you do. You don't, I don't think about it. I don't, um, you know, sit down and think, wow, I've done some exciting stuff because to me it's, it's everyday stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like getting up, going to work anytime. And, you know, when we did that first kiss convention in Indianapolis, you know, Kim had met a bunch of people, you know, she was excited to meet Bruce Kulik. Oh, sure. Um, you know, John Regan walked over and he came right up to me. He's like, David, how you been? And I was like, John, you remember me? He's like, oh yeah, I remember you. <laughs> we started talking. And then when he walked away, Kim said to me, well, who has he played with? I said, Peter Frampton. And she went, no. <laughs> I mean, she was excited about Bruce Kulik because on one of the tours that Bruce was out with Grand Funk Railroad, mm-hmm. he invited us to a show. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's, and he was out Kim, with them, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and he still plays with Grand Funk Railroad. Now mm-hmm. he does uh, some. He does some of the uh, celebrity stuff on Access TV on uh, like their top ten list and that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and his wife does a lot of uh, artwork and some jewelry stuff that is really incredible. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, as you get out there and you start seeing this and Kim got to meet John Regan and then she met Bruce Kulick and then she met Robert Fleshman, mm-hmm. who was the original singer on the very first Vinnie Vincent album. That's right. That's right. And then he was replaced by Mark Slaughter. Yep. Well, Robert Fleshman, I, you know, had started to explain to Kim while we're standing there. I said, Robert was the lead singer in journey before Steve Perry. Yep. And she was like, no. And I said, go ask him. And she comes back and she's like, did you know he wrote Wheel in the Sky at any time? And I said, yep. Mm-hmm. And she said, he even sang it for me. And I said, how did it sound? She goes, oh, my God. And then Robert's walking over and he's he now does artwork. Mm-hmm. He's giving her T-shirts. Lita Ford comes down because she's next to us because Bobby's her drummer. She wrote the foreword uh, in mm-hmm. Bobby's book, and Kiss fans just love her. She's got a line out the door. Her and Kim are standing there dancing around, carrying on like two co- you know high school girls, mm-hmm. having a good time because they hadn't seen each other in a while. And uh, you know, it's a, and I said to Kim when we left, I said, you know, I've been doing this for so many years. I always feel bad asking artists just to put us on a guest list. Mm-hmm. And I think we need another suitcase for all the crap that all these artists gave you without you even having to ask. Yeah. Cause Lita, Lita gave her a bunch of posters, eight by tens. I think Kim had eight by 10 signed for everybody that she knew that, uh, even knew who Lita Ford was mm. <laughs> that she brought home. And then there was jewelry and uh, T-shirts and CDs. And as I said, there, I was like, did you get all this crap? Mm. You know, and then I took her to a second KISS convention, um, which actually happened to be on our, our anniversary weekend in December, mm. two years ago. Right. And we set up, we did all of that. Once again, Kim had a good time. Uh, a big fan of kiss he came over and he said to me um david he said i saw that your wife posted that today was your anniversary 
yeah, I said, uh, I'll be paying for this for a couple years. And he said, I really want to meet your wife. And this guy owns a nut company called Wolfie's Nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that guy sent us like a 30-pound box of nuts. <laughs> and as I said to Kim, I was like, how do you do that? <laughs> and our anniversary, we decided we're going to have dinner at the restaurant in the hotel, which was Ruth Chris. Mm-hmm. And who walks over but Bobby Rock and Lita Ford going, hey, we know it's your anniversary. Lita Ford sings happy anniversary to us. Oh, that's nice. And then Bobby hands his money and says, dinner's on us. Hey, man. Yeah. Well, the next thing you know, we ended up, instead of a, a nice little quaint dinner for two, romantic dinner for two people on their anniversary, it was us with 12 other KISS fans. <laughs> <laughs> but here again, people that you meet through music, mm-hmm. two of the couples, um, stay in touch with them still quite a bit mm-hmm. one of the couple uh they live actually not far from us they come to see us once in a while really great people and mm-hmm. yeah that's what kim said to me she kind of cringed when i first said something about going to a kiss convention and helping bobby rock and working a table all day but by the time she was finished and we did the second one you know, she told me, you know, don't get me wrong. You know, mm-hmm. she said, I don't ever need to do it again. But I had a really good time <laughs> because she got to meet, you know, not just the celebrities, but a whole lot of people that just have such a passion about the music that they like and that sort of stuff. And she's a people person. Right. Yeah. 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 And she talks to everybody. Oh yeah. I've met her on a number of occasions and I mean, she's very, very nice. Very, very nice. Yeah. And it helps too that, uh, you know, she's six foot tall. So she kind of towers over me (laughs) and uh, people spot her first. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yes. She she is tall because I'm tall too. I'm six foot six. And I always remembered, you know, seeing her. At different, you know, yeah. like the things that we've been at together and everything, you know, and um, yeah. very, very one nice. Of few, one of the few people that can actually look you in the eye. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much, you know, and uh, yeah, she, like I said, she's always, I, I've always thought she was just delightful whenever I met her and everything. So uh, very, very nice lady, Dave. Very nice. You've chosen yeah. well. You've chosen well in life here. <laughs> uh, I got, I got real lucky when, yep. uh, we, we talk about it every now and again, mm-hmm. and um, she laughs at me all the time because like, we'll get in the bed, and, mm-hmm. you know, we turn the TV on, you know, just like a bunch of old people do, and then she'll lean over and she'll say to me, I love you, <laughs> and then I'll look at her and very seriously say, you should. <laughs> 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 then usually I get kicked. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but, you know, it's for being such a screwed up year with the whole COVID-19 thing mm-hmm. and having to be around somebody so much. I mean, it's, it's great that, you know, here I'm with somebody whose company I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. And I know that she enjoys my company. And, 
you know, when we are around people, especially people who don't know us, Mm -hmm. sometimes Kim and I will start an exchange and we'll go back and forth. And I've actually had people pull me to the side and go, you guys having trouble or do you even like each other? And it's like, oh, no, that's just how we talk to each other. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, everybody's got their way of communicating Mm -hmm. and you know, her and I have that, and and I'm very grateful that she understands more so now about the music stuff, mm-hmm. and she understands how a lot of that works, and, and she's really great about when we go places, um, if she has an opinion about something, she waits until we're alone. Right, right, right. And then she lets me know, because I know that's one of the things that, when I deal with bands, especially if you get into like a management type of thing, mm-hmm. I always tell them, um, nobody cares what your girlfriend thinks. Nobody cares what your wife thinks. Nobody cares what your boyfriend thinks. Whatever it is, this has to be about you guys, just mm-hmm. the guys in the band. This is about your opinion. And sure, you can go home and you can bitch about this one or that one, complain about one another. And when you come back in, just don't bring that in. Mm -hmm. Or if you have an idea about something or you don't like something, maybe last photo session that you did, you were in the back and your girlfriend didn't like it. You don't lead with, well, when I showed my girlfriend a picture, she didn't like it. Mm -hmm. That's not the lead. Your lead should be, it's your opinion. Mm -hmm. It's what it is because your girlfriend is not in this band. Right. You're right. in a four or five or six way marriage, depending on how big the band is mm-hmm. with those people. And you need to focus on that because yep. music is so hard nowadays. Oh, I and can, yeah. I mean, it sucks because I've seen bands that, you know, newer bands that are starting out and they start arguing over, uh, what percentage that you know somebody in the band's going to get of of publishing? Mm-hmm. Well, unless you sell your song to a movie, which the likelihood of that happening is is very very low. You know, your music is more of a secondary product. You know, nowadays, I mean, it's sad to think that a band spends so much money recording an album. And fans will come to a show, they won't spend $10 to buy your music, but they'll spend $500 to do the experience of Mm -hmm. the VIP thing. And that's crazy, you know, at least in my opinion. I mean, I guess, you know, I tend to be a little bit more jaded about it because I've done it, Mm -hmm. you know, so much. And... But, I mean, I remember when I was a kid and I would go to shows of artists that I love so much. If I really wanted to meet them, I went and I hung out at the hotel. Mm-hmm. I hung out by a backstage door. Hell, I met Def Leppard um, on their Pyromania tour. And they played the Capitol Center. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, what is it? Crocus. Crocus. It was Crocus. I remember that. There you go. And went with a bunch of friends. We got out of the car and we were, you know, making 
rude suggestions to some of the ladies that were in the car next to us. And when we came <laughs> back to the car afterwards, we had four flat tires. Oh. Well, <clears throat> we had to make the best of it. You know, this is way before the cell phones. So we had to find a payphone. <laughs> Once we found the payphone, we were able to, you know, the person whose car it was, they had to call their father and tell their father that we have four flat tires and he was going to come out and bring us four new tires. Well, in the meantime, we had time to wait. So it was like, well, come on, let's go and down where the band comes out. <laughs> so we ended up sitting on the tour bus with that flatbird for like an hour. <laughs> You know, well, they sat there and just talked to us and signed stuff. And, you know, my big fascination then was, you know, they have such British accents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and I still remember looking at Rick Savage thinking, God, his hair is purple. You know, why is his hair purple? I didn't get that. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know? and then fast forward, you know, 23 years later, um, they're out on the road 26 years later, I guess it was. Mm -hmm. Joan Jett uh, opened for them down in Salisbury. Oh, yeah. In 2000. Mm -hmm. And Joan asked us to come down to the show. They put us at the hotel um, that not didn't know, but Def Leppard was staying there. So I had Rick Savage in front of me and Joe Elliott behind me waiting in line mm -hmm. to check into our rooms. Mm-hmm. You know, which is always an interesting sort of thing. And I mean, you, you get to meet some great people sometimes, you know, if you, you know, they hang out at the hotels. I mean, I know, mm -hmm. uh, got, what was it? November 23rd, 1985, mm -hmm. uh, it was in Worcester, Massachusetts. Maybe it was 86. Um, I, I know it just came up because somebody had mentioned it to me on uh, Facebook, um, I stayed and went to the Kiss show up in uh, at the Centrum in Worcester. Opening band was Queensryche. Loved Queensryche. I saw them play with opening for Twisted Sister at the Wax Museum in D.C. Mm. Way back in like 1980 or something. And stayed at a hotel, which was the same hotel that Kiss stayed at. And when I came out of my room to go down to the bar to hope that some of the band members were hanging out, I come out, and who's right across the hall from me? Chris DeGarmo, the <laughs> guitar player from right. Queensryche. Mm -hmm. And another door opens to the left. It's Eddie Jackson and Michael Wilton from Queensryche. And then another door open to my right was uh, uh, Jeff Tate, lead singer. Hmm. So I took a picture with Jeff Tate, and this was back in the days when you could smoke and drink and all that sort of good stuff in the hotels. Mm -hmm. um, he stayed with a cigarette in his hand and a beer. That's <clears throat> why so I asked him. I was like, is that good that you sing and you smoke? And he goes, oh, I like to smoke. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. You know. Mm. So I stood there, had a smoke with him, and uh, took a few pictures with him. And I was like, this was pretty cool. And by the end of the night, all the guys in Queensryche were in my room. We were having a good time. Cool. That's wild. I mean, you know, and that's like some of the stuff that, you know, people don't necessarily get that experience anymore because the experience now that, that people want is not, it's that, you know, they pay all that money for like 15 seconds to stand with an artist. 
Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, I, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I think that if you really, really love a band mm-hmm. and you want to go ahead and you want to pay for a meet and greet, I think that's a fantastic thing to do. It is a nice way for artists to make some extra money because they're not selling music anymore because yep. people will pay for that 15-second experience to take a picture mm-hmm. and say, look who I met. But, you know, I just looked at that as that's when artists should all be on their best behavior when people are paying for that. Yes, I agree. I agree. Because believe me, I've been in too many situations where I wanted to meet somebody Mm -hmm. who I just thought was so incredible and I had all their records and they turned out just really disappointing me. Mm -hmm. But as I got into the music business and started working with the artists, I started to learn that everybody has good days and bad days. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. That, yeah. That's the truth. Just like the rest of us. And you know, you, you see that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, God, I I've seen more things that I would never, ever tell people because it's so personal. Oh yeah. You know, mm-hmm. What you see with that, you know, stuff that you take for granted. Now, you know, granted, you come to my house, I'm going to tell you, you know, who used the bathroom upstairs, who famous did, you know, but I'm also going to tell you too. Yeah. I've cleaned that, you know, like a hundred times after they left because I know where they've been, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, you, you separate that, but the experiences that I've had is not the 15 second thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, sitting around with Chips Enough, who introduced me to Smokey Robertson, right. you know, and, you know, told me about some of that great Motown stuff and then introduced me to the Beatles music. And got me into that the whole time he was sitting there getting high. <laughs> you know, being on a, a bus, traveling with a band in the middle of the night, looking outside, seeing absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. And then saying to somebody, you know what? I have to poop. <laughs> and that's when you're told, um, yeah, we don't do that on the bus. <laughs> 20 years old you're like yeah but i have to poop (laughs) (laughs) and there is nothing there is no greater experience than pulling over in the middle of the midwest (laughs) in a (laughs) cornfield and then the bus driver says if you have to go you better go because we're not stopping again Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, back in the 80s to have <clears throat> 12 long-haired guys mm-hmm. running off the bus and the bus driver is handing everybody a roll of toilet paper telling you, bring it back with you, bring it back. <laughs> and, of course, you run in every different direction. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I can only imagine, you know, if people saw that, you mm-hmm. know, guys running out some half dressed because you know it's like this is going to be your only stop for like the next six hours so if you poop you know you better poop now right so right. talk about poop on demand but, yep. 
you kind of get that in sync and everything, you know? So, uh, well, Dave, it's been a blast having you on here with us again. Uh, I absolutely love your stories. And, um, I was just wondering if I could ask one request before we wrap it up here. Um, you told me one of my favorite rock and roll stories of all time about Alice Cooper. Um, a number of years ago at, at your uh, parents' house. Could you tell us that story? Oh, gosh. Vinny was, Vinny Vincent Invasion was on tour with Ellis Cooper. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because I had just gotten involved with Vinny's band and I was determined that this was going to be my, you know, career mm-hmm. and life. And, you know, my mother really thought that this was all about drugs and drinking. Mm-hmm. And she had no idea. And she wanted to meet them. And so I was like, yeah, okay. And I told the band and um, their manager set it up because they had three days off in Baltimore. And they pulled up a tour bus. And the four members of Vinnie Vincent's band, Vinnie Vincent, Bobby Rock, Mark Slaughter, Dana Strom, couple road crew guys, their manager and Alice Cooper all came in and had dinner with my mom and dad. And my mother thought that they were just absolutely the best gentleman ever. <laughs> and, you know, uh, you know, when my mom passed, uh, it's been about eight years now when she passed and I, I started going through some of her photo albums, you know, after the service and stuff, all I thought was, I didn't know that my mother had all this. My mother had thank you cards from almost every artist I ever worked with Hmm. that they had mailed to her. Um, It could have been like when I was on tour with them, one artist sent my mom a postcard that just said, we're taking care of baby boy. (laughs) Anyhow, um, the thank you card that they all sent my mom for having dinner there. Um, you know, I found pictures of my mom with Joan Jett at my first wedding. Hmm. You know, pictures with her and Ace Frehley at my retail store that I had. Right. You know, it was like all this cool stuff that, I, you know, uh, I didn't realize that my mom saved. I didn't know that it meant that much to her. But I guess I should have when I turned the page and there's my first grade report card still. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, and I, I'd always said that I was never really a big sentimental person. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do know that deep down inside I am. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I must have gotten that from my mom because that was one of the things that my mom cherished so much. Right. And, right. um, I mean, even when she died, uh, the largest flower arrangement that came and the one that meant so much to my father was the one that came from Joan Jett. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing was huge. And, you know, that's what my father said to me. He said, you know, that lady must really love you. Mm-hmm. And that's what I said to him. I said, you know, Dad, there's a lot of years and a lot of love and a lot of respect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just what you, yeah, it's, it's like what you do with any of your friends. Yep. You know, somebody passes on whether you knew the person or you didn't know the person. Mm-hmm. 
you know, when they do that and, you know, it's like, you know, before I, you know, end here, I guess, I will say that the probably the coolest thing that I've ever, ever seen, um, and I probably had at least a dozen different artists send flowers and cards and condolences for when my oldest sister, who was um, very severely mentally challenged um, when she passed. She was almost 50 years old, had always lived with my parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the girl who, at my first wedding, when Joan Jett came to it, um, they started to play I Hate Myself for Loving You. My sister, not she loved music, mm -hmm. and not knowing who Joan Jett was, she actually walked over to Joan Jett and made her clap her hands and dance with her to her own song, which was <laughs> absolutely hysterical. But oh, yeah. um, when my sister died in 2009, mm -hmm. um, I had been doing work with Kelly Bell for about, you know, 10 years at this point. Mm -hmm. And Kelly had never met my sister. He had met my mom and my father once or twice. Um, but you know, when you don't live at home anymore, you barely see people's parents. And, mm -hmm. but Kelly showed up at my sister's viewing, had a three piece suit on, mm -hmm. had his hair pulled back and he had a single rose in his hand. And he walked over and he said to me, he said, David, I am really sorry. Where is your mom? And he went over. I reintroduced him to my mother and he handed the rose to my mother and then sat there with her for two hours mm -hmm. holding her hand. No matter who came over and talked to her, of course, they were probably thinking, the hell's this big guy with the dreadlocks? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, and that's what I said to Kelly. I mean, that was the day that I knew that he was like a brother to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And you know, here again, somebody else who I've met through music, mm -hmm. but to see him do something that was just so unselfish and so giving of himself, mm -hmm. you know, having never met my sister, but understanding what she meant yeah. to our family and to do that, just sit there and hold my mother's hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that to me was one of the greatest things. And, um, yeah. You know, and I'm just unfortunate because I have so many good moments that have happened in my life. And, you yeah. know, when I start talking to people like you and it starts to remind me of some of that stuff. Right, right. Yeah. I, I'd never met, but, you know, I'd, I'd never met Kelly Bell before, but I had heard from so many people. He's just, you know, just got a big, big heart and he's just, you know, top of the line as far as, you know, good people and everything. Yeah. I mean, he is, um, he is somebody that, uh, you know, he and I both, uh, ended up going through a divorce at the same time, yeah. um, in mid 2000, you know, like, uh, 2006 through something like that. And, um, we both went through a divorce at the same time and, uh, you know, we've been through so many things together and for a while I did try to manage the band, but, you know, Kelly and I finally just decided that, uh, you know, we're actually better off friends. Mm -hmm. And it's better that he calls and we talk about stuff. And even when, 
he has something that he wants to do, he still calls and he asks me about it. Mm-hmm. Or he will make an excuse to come to my house. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's funny because Kim asked me all the time. She's like, um, why is Kelly coming over? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, he says that he's going to the store down the street. I said, but, you know, why do you think he's coming? And she's like, he just wants to hang out for a while, doesn't he? And mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, because, you know, we just enjoy each other so much. And yeah, he's yeah. one of those guys that, you know, when there's something going on in life, you know, he's the guy that I want to talk to. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the guy that when it's, you know, other than my wife, who you share all your good news with first, he's usually my second or third call. Right. right. Yeah. You know, but just an incredible guy, incredibly talented, great singer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I could never, ever say enough about the guy. And if you've never seen the band, whether they call it fat blues and you think blues, it's not my thing. I didn't understand it until I went out and I saw it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, when you go and you see his band play, it's just a good time. Oh, it is. It is. I've seen them a few times over the years, and it's it's very, very well done. Very well done. Oh, and then when, like I said, when he and I get together, um, it, it becomes more of a comedy act with he and I. Because <laughs> yeah. when we did uh, some of the videos for his last album and all that sort of stuff. I mean, we spend more time laughing at one another mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it's, it's good to have those kind of friends. Right. And, you know, I don't care if they're famous, semi-famous, almost famous, not famous at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always nice to have those people in your life. And believe me, there's a lot of great people that, you know, I can mention their names, but people would be like, well, who the hell is that? I don't know who that, you know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All that matters to me is, is that it's my friend. Right. <laughs> you know? right. I just happen to have a couple that are a little famous and, uh, you know, that's all. <laughs> well, wonderful. Well, well, again, Dave, it's been a, it's been an absolute joy having you come on again. Um, if there were an act or a band out there that were looking for your types of services, how could somebody reach out and uh, catch up with you? Oh, they can you know, look me up on Facebook and, uh, you know, that's always the best way to hit me up Okay, and then we take it from there. I mean, I'm not a, uh, fancy website guy or any of that sort of stuff. Been doing it for too many years. Sure. And, sure. uh, you know, people ask me if I ever have a business card and it's like, wow, business card. It's like writing a telephone number down on a napkin. Don't we just <laughs> tap phones and exchange it now? <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks well, again, David. Well, I, thank you, Mike. I, I, I do appreciate it. I really appreciate you coming with us. And thank you all for listening. This has been David Snowden on Foul Players Radio, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and for contact information on publicist Steve Joyner.